morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. Happy Halloween! Yay! We are back with part two of our special Vincent Price episode. If you missed part one, go back. Because you're only going to get half the story. <laughs> yeah. The second half. <laughs> so we're going to be talking about a few Vincent Price movies in this episode, uh, more in depth. We're not going to go in depth with all of them, but... Uh, some of them are probably going to have spoilers for some of you guys, so watch out for that. When we last left Vincent, he had just been offered the main role in the remake of the 1933 classic horror film, The Mystery at the House of Wax. This time, the title of the film would be shortened to House of Wax and would be filmed in color and in 3D. Now, 3D was something that film companies tried to use to get people out of their homes and away from their televisions and back into the theater. The interesting thing is, and I don't think we mentioned this in our House of Wax episode, but the director of this film had one eye. Interesting. Wait, 3D? Yeah. But he had one eye. Yep. So his depth... <laughs> yep. It's okay. You can laugh. <laughs> It's funny. <laughs> oh, no. His depth perception was completely off. <laughs> and he had no idea what the fuss was about for 3D. <laughs> he was like, I don't get this whole 3D thing. I don't know what you guys are talking about. This sucks. <laughs> Basically. No. So, of course, he had to make the film in 3D. But he didn't really get into, like, too much of it. So that's why there's only a few scenes in that film that, like, focus on 3D. Like, the guy with, like, the, the paddle, paddle ball. ball. yeah. Yeah, like, and the, the girls with the flippy of the dresses. Uh, Vincent actually liked that, though. He actually thought that by toning down the gimmick part of the 3D made the film more enjoyable. And that's what kept the movie a classic. Yeah, because, I mean... Those scenes are kind of weird, but unless you are like, oh, this is 3D, like really looking for it, you're right. You can't really tell. No. Yeah, you can't. Although Vincent appeared in The Invisible Man Returns, this was considered his first real horror film. As his daughter Victoria puts it, Vincent played a good guy gone bad, a villain who evokes the audience's sympathies. In this role, Vincent really took his unsought place in the horror genre. If you guys would like an in-depth history and discussion about the plot and the characters in House of Wax, check out our third episode, which is available on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course our website, www.goodmorningnancy.com slash listen. We were just little babies back then. <laughs> little teeny tiny babies. Little teeny tiny podcast babies. <laughs> Because of his starring role, the now 42-year-old Vincent was starting to get recognition from teenagers who were going to see this horror movie with friends or on dates. Vincent got a huge kick out of his new young fans. Here's a quote from the book, Vincent Price, A Daughter's Biography. As he loved to tell the story, I was doing a play down the street in New York, so I would walk right into the movie theater and sit among the audience. Once I sat down behind two teenage girls who seemed to be enjoying the picture immensely. When I finally died in the picture, I was plunged into a vat of boiling wax. Moments later, as the end flashed upon the screen, I bent over the two girls and said, Did you like it? They went into orbit. House of Wax was a hit, even though television was a threat 
to Hollywood. In the 1950s, television was becoming increasingly popular, and Vincent really enjoyed that. Many producers in Hollywood discouraged actors from appearing in TV, but Vincent didn't listen. If anything, he saw TV as a great opportunity for more work, and in the case of being on game shows, he would get more recognition. Some of the shows that he was doing during the 1950s were Lux Video Theater, Climax, and the very first episode of Playhouse 90, and our favorite, Pantomime Quiz Time. During this time, Vincent's home life was also beginning to change as well. Mary no longer wanted to live in the Canyon House, the house where all the dogs died, or just the one, but you know. I don't blame her. (laughs) So she bought a beautiful big home near Westwood, California. Vincent was worried that the home was too large for just two people, though. Soon afterwards, son Barrett, who was 14 at the time, went to court to get legal permission to live with his father and stepmother full time. With Edith's constant mental abuse and drug problems, it was a no-brainer, and Barrett went to live with his father in their new house. Mary loved Barrett and was so pleased to have him there. Barrett, from then on, I guess, would refer to Mary as the woman who raised him rather than his actual mother. This was also the time that Mary hired a man to help clean the big house. His name was Harry. And at 45 years old, this was his first job after years of earning money through gambling and playing pool. Oh. He actually faked his resume when he started there. (laughs) This was his first job ever. His first real job. It was also at this time that Vincent's longtime friend, Hank Millam, came to live in the big house, too, after he left the Korean War. He lived there for nine years until he got married. It was an odd house and an odd family, but for years and years, they all made it work. They also lived across the street from Marilyn Monroe for a few years. That's so cool. Yep. Hank, Harry, Mary, and Vincent would all take turns checking for the mail throughout the day to see if they could see her. One time, Vincent saw her. She nodded at him, and he was starstruck. Vincent returned to the house saying, Isn't it amazing? She's such a big star. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Another time, Ella Fitzgerald drove by the house, stopped the car, and called out Vincent's name. He came to the car and chatted with her for a while. When she drove off, Vincent said, I can't believe she remembered me. We met only a few years ago. Even though Vincent himself was becoming a big star, he was still starstruck by others. That's pretty admirable. Yeah. He, like, wouldn't ask for reservations. Like, if he did ask for reservations, he would just call as, like, a normal guy. He wouldn't be like, this is Vincent Price. I would like a table for one, please, at the front of the restaurant with your best waiter. Like, he wouldn't do that kind of crap. In front of the window so I can view the paparazzi. So I can look at the peasants walking by. Oh, no. During the immediate months after filming House of Wax, Vincent made a handful of mediocre films, none of them living up to the fame that House of Wax has. These films included Dangerous Mission, Casanova's Big Night, don't know why that didn't work, (laughs) The Mad Magician, and Son of Sinbad. But soon after that, TV, film, theater, and radio jobs stopped coming to Vincent altogether. So here's a little history lesson. The House Committee of Un-American Activities had been hunting down alleged communists across the United States starting in 1947. They not only focused on the little people, but on big-name stars, directors, and musicians as well. 
There were 10 people, directors and screenwriters, who were brought before the court because they were accused of communism. They were known as the Hollywood 10. Stars such as Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, Frank Sinatra, and Groucho Marx would fly to the hearings in Washington to support them. Although the 10 were not charged with being communists, Hollywood wanted no part to play in them and they refused to hire them back, putting them on the infamous Hollywood blacklist created by Senator McCarthy. Other Hollywood personnel would be added to the blacklist, and this included actors Lee J. Cobb, Charlie Chaplin, Kim Hunter, Stella Adler, Uta Hagen, Burl Ives, Edward G. Robinson, and Orson Welles. Was wasn't Cary Grant on that list at one point too? He might have been. I didn't see uh, him on the blacklist. Mm. I tried to add people who I thought would stand out. He might have been gray listed, which was what Vincent was. I think he was. I could be mistaken, but I feel like I remember reading something about that. He might have been. Yeah, absolutely. What was interesting was that most of these people were premature anti-Nazi sympathizers, which to Senator McCarthy could only mean that they were communists. Of course, anti-Nazis are communists. What else? Like, it doesn't, to me, it makes zero sense. Like, I don't understand politics very well, obviously, but like, why would you go after anti-Nazi sympathizers? Like that, like, don't, they're the good guys. That baffles me. (laughs) Yeah. What the heck? There was also a gray list, which we mentioned earlier, Mm -hmm. that almost got just as much rap as the blacklist. Vincent Price would find that his name would be on this gray list. Although it couldn't be proved that Vincent was involved in communism, the gray list still suggested to the entertainment industry that he was being carefully watched by the government. During this difficult time, Mary encouraged Vincent to focus on various writing projects, and a few trustworthy friends in the radio business gave him radio voice jobs. With the help of a friend, her name was Mrs. Hildebrandt, she was a government official, Vincent and Mary voluntarily expressed their interests in being interviewed by the FBI. After the two agents had successfully interviewed the Prices, they were immediately exonerated. Vincent would be able to work in film again, and his project that he would return to was Cecil B. DeMille's epic, The Ten Commandments. (laughs) Yes. Do you watch that every Easter? Because we do. Yep. (laughs) Yep. Everyone, since I was maybe like four, I think. But I never realized until I was much older that that was Vincent Price. So I actually didn't realize it was him until very recently, too. I think I was like shocked with how many actors I knew were in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty bananas. Well, and this was because everyone who was anyone wanted to be a part of this masterpiece. So many actors took on measly roles just to be in the film. And this was including Vincent and like Edward G. Robinson was another one, too. Mm -hmm. How long is that film? (sighs) Two and a half, maybe three hours. Okay, It's pretty long. Yeah. Most actors at the time were just happy for the work, especially after the blacklist and graylist years. Breaking back into the cinema world, Vincent was able to get a role in Fritz Lang's While the City Sleeps, a classic film noir, which I like Fritz Lang and I've never seen that film. He then starred in a film called Serenade and then a, a film called A Story of Mankind. But Vincent was beginning to get concerned about his age because he was pushing 50 and he wasn't so sure if there were any roles for him coming up. Yeah, but you can't even tell how old he is. I know. If I had to guess for House of Wax, I would say like mid-30s. 
I didn't know he was in his 40s when he did that film. I had no idea how old he was in all of these horror films either, like mm-hmm. until reading this biography, because uh, he does. He looks great. He does. I think he had issues. Like, like, we talked about this in the first episode. He had a lot of, like, confidence issues. Yeah. So I wonder if that had something to do with it. Hmm. Vincent felt like he wasn't young, but that he wasn't old either. He also wasn't Cary Grant or John Wayne, whose ages, he thought, seemed to transcend time and space. (laughs) John Wayne? What? No, John Wayne definitely looked his age. Yeah. I think because he always had a role, though, as a cowboy. Like, he could always be that. And I don't think Vincent had, like, a spot for himself, like, in that role. Like, I don't think he knew what could be suitable for him. Like, he wasn't, like, the cowboy figure. And he kind of wasn't, like, the leading man that Cary Grant was. Yeah. So... You know, I think that's why he fits so well into that, the villain. In 1958, the movie version of one of the most popular short stories in 1957 was produced. This movie would be The Fly. It's the story of a scientist who accidentally transforms himself into a human-fly hybrid. Vincent plays Francois, the brother of the doomed scientist. Francois. Yeah, it takes place in, I guess, French like French provinces of Canada? I don't know. It doesn't take place in France. But it, okay. <laughs> so it's sort of... I think of, it's Canadian. Sort of classy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so there's a scene where Vincent Price and Herbert Herbert Marshall's characters hear a small uh, voice. Can you do the voice, Abby? <laughs> that was so good. The scene where they do that, where they hear the voice... Um, Herbert Marshall and Vincent couldn't keep a straight face. <laughs> I, think, I mean, you couldn't either, so no. I don't even... <laughs> I think because that person who's like the half-fly man isn't there with them in real life. Yeah. But I wonder if the director's like, okay, so now you see a spider web, and there's a little fly with a head of a man attached and there's a spider coming towards the fly and you have to kill it and it's saying help me help me and they were probably like this is bs (laughs) (laughs) all believability out the window yep so yeah they couldn't keep a straight face it's a good thing that the movie worked out though because it grossed over three million dollars in the box office wow yeah it, it was a it was a hit Soon after The Fly wrapped, Vincent was asked to do a film with the then new director and producer named William Castle. Castle became known for using gimmicks in the theater to scare his audiences. In his first film, Macabre, he featured his first gimmick, a $1,000 life insurance policy for those who attended the film. In his second film, House on Haunted Hill, he had a glow-in-the-dark skeleton fly through the audience during the pivotal scene in which uh, Vincent is, like, controlling, like, that skeleton. Yes. Yep, yep. Uh, that's towards the end. That would probably be really creepy. I mean, it's a creepy movie anyway. Yeah, that would have scared me, I think. I think, think. So. yeah. Vincent's character was a millionaire who invites five people plus his wife to a well-known haunted house. He asks them to stay the night. And if they survive, he will give each of them $10,000. Would you stay in a haunted house with Vincent Price if he gave you $10,000 if um, you survived? I mean, I would do it for free. <laughs> Vincent Price? Haunted yeah. house? Ghosts? Sign me up. 
<laughs> and you get a gun. You get a gun in oh, yeah. in a little coffin thing. A little coffin box. Um, yes. So I get $10,000 and a keepsake. And I get to hang out with V Price. Yeah. Heck yeah. <laughs> I know. It sounds like a really fun party. It does. Wow, we're psychopaths. <laughs> $10,000 is a lot of money. Mm, even nowadays. Yeah. Like, I I don't know. I, mean, I would do it. you could buy, like, a sort of nice car with that. A maybe. sort of nice car? Like, a new used car, you I know? could just pay my rent for 10 months. You could do that. That's all yeah. I really Heck need. yeah. <laughs> I remember being so shocked with that movie, though, because it was, like, one of the first classic movies that I heard someone swear in. And I was like whoa yes. pushing the envelope what's the swear word i think she says damn you yes because he pulls her hair yeah 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 oh man yes Ooh. Ooh. i was like oh she's getting testy another vincent price movie where we questioned if we were allowed to watch yeah. it <laughs> the vulgarity <laughs> <laughs> the film was a huge hit and it became a cult classic it earned over four million at the box office and it was official Vincent Price was the new face of horror. So William Castle directed another horror feature right after House on Haunted Hill, and this one would also star Vincent Price. The movie was called The Tingler, and it was guaranteed to scare its audience due to Castle's newest gimmick. There were select theater seats that would shimmy and buzz during certain moments in the film, making the audience members jump out of their seats. Oh my god. I kind of wish I would have experienced that. Me too. What the heck was that like? And how did they do it? Yeah. What were the mechanics? Did they have to, like, take out, like, certain seats in the theater and, I, like, redo them just for imagine. the film? Or they, like, put something inside the cushion or something? Listen, guys, if you know how the mechanics of that worked, like, please let us know because we have no clue, like, how the Tingler seats worked. Vincent then went on to do a less than perfect sequel to The Fly, and even though Vincent didn't like the script, he knew that it would resonate with the young audience again. Vincent was so excited about his work within the horror genre because his fears of being too old and not being current enough were gone. He loved that he was impressing younger audiences. He wrote, The world can never grow old for me, as long as there are young people seeing it differently every second of every day for all my days. From then on, Vincent decided to always stay on top of what was current and hip. He was the original hipster. Hip to the jive. Mm. <laughs> so Vincent's next film was a mystery thriller that Abby and I both love so much. It stars Agnes Moorhead, and it's called The Bat. <laughs> yes. We love The Bat. It's so good. The Bat. The Bat. <laughs> Although this film was the third adaptation of this story, the studios thought that by modernizing it, it would be fresh, I guess. Uh, no, it failed miserably. Nobody liked it. Oh my god, it's so... Except us. Yeah, it's so bad that it's good, though. And I mean, those special effects with the bat. With the bat? Can't you tell it's a real bat? Uh, Vincent's staple role as the ghoul in horror films, though, still would not fade even after the flop of the bit. <laughs> it seemed like Vincent's life was going splendidly, but it wasn't without its down points. Mary felt that Vincent worked too much and knew that part of it was his fears of the gray list years. She suggested that Vincent take some time off and spend some time with her and Barrett. 
Vincent would get angry at her about this, though, and he would drink, and then he'd become a mean drunk. According to his son Barrett, his dad was a nasty drunk and would lash out irrationally at him and Mary whenever they weren't agreeable. Vincent was terribly worried and moody during this time and would bring his troubles home. Vincent felt like he was out of control with his life and constantly complaining that he was taking jobs, not because they were good opportunities, but because they were all that were available to him. But then he would have days where he was genuinely kind, compassionate, happy with his film choices, and compatible with Mary and Barrett. It was clear that Vincent was suffering from depression. I think that's, I mean, obviously though, as an artist, everybody goes through that. Because there's like phases of when you're doubting if you're making the right choice or not. Plus... With his whole family being very, like, business-minded and coming from a very businessy background, I'm sure he doubted, like, his success sometimes. Because yeah. it wasn't measured the same way that the rest of his family measured theirs, so. Absolutely, and he was basically one of the only siblings who pursued an art career. So Mary would continue to help Vincent battle this depression by creating activities for them to do when they were together. They would learn to cook and they would garden together and take care of their animals together. Mary would get them out of the house and explore museums, cactus nurseries, junk shops, and antique stores. Oh my god. I know. They would also go to baseball games and watch the Dodgers play. To top it all off, Mary and Vincent took an extensive trip to Greece, Italy, and Spain together to look at art and architecture. So there was a game show that came out. It was called The $64,000 Question. It was a show where they would have two guests on and they would have the two guests go up against each other and they would maybe be famous or well-known in one thing, but they would have the same expertise in another. So Vincent was asked to be on the show along with the jockey, Billy Pearson, who was also an art expert like Vincent. Vincent wanted exposure as an art expert, but also he thought it would it would actually work in his favor because he thought he could win. So he nice. this was another opportunity for him to earn money. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So Vincent was the tall, studious-looking professor type, while Billy was the short ham of the two. <laughs> they were what television loved, friendly rivals. So Vincent began studying every day. He would go to the Met and he would read art encyclopedias. Uh, the show was on for many, many weeks and there were like Team Vincent's and like Team Billy's all over the USA and everyone just loved it. It nice. just sort of reminds me of like when Twilight came out. Oh my God. <laughs> Finally, Vincent and Billy tied for first and they split the prize money. Wow, that's nice. Yeah. Vincent was asked to come on the show again, this time going up against an old friend, Edward G. Robinson. They would go against each other for every Sunday for like six weeks. And in the final week, Edward G. Robinson was asked his $64,000 question, and he got it incorrect. So all eyes were on Vincent when he was asked his different $64,000 question. The question was, name all of the painters involved in the Sistine Chapel. Oh, wow. Go, Abby. Name one. Oh, my God. Oh, okay. what? Michelangelo. I, that's all I know. I Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say, but I was like second guessing. Like, you dumb idiot. You took art history like four years ago at this point, and I've forgotten <laughs> it all. So it's okay. okay. Vincent will answer it for you. Oh, thanks, Vincent. Except he got one wrong. Oh. He named all of them except for one, the man who painted the fig leaves over the nudes when, you know, they were all super conservative oh, back then. Oh, those jerks. So it was another tie. And so Vincent 
you know, got to split the money again, and he was officially an art hero. According to a daughter's biography, Vincent took art off of its pedestal and gave it to the common people. Many museum directors across the USA had contacted him to tell him that after his stint on the show, they noticed a significant increase in foot traffic in their museums, as well as in art book sales, art history students in colleges, and museum volunteers. Heck yes, achievement unlocked. Absolutely. With the public's newfound love for Vincent Price as an art expert, he was kept busy with making appearances at art shows, museums, colleges, and clubs. In 1959, something called the Game Show Scandal came to light, in which a multitude multitude of game shows were under the scrutiny of being rigged. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. Mm. Vincent had to testify that he had not been given any answers before the show, nor had he been coached on what to say. Vincent left the scandal clean and thought that it was high time that he write his first biography. I like what I know. Mary said that writing the book was one of the greatest joys of his life. In the book, Vincent was able to poke fun at himself as well. In so many words, he confessed that he was guilty of mansplaining when it came to art, and that he was also very sexist when it came to female artists. In the 1940s, he was known to say, quite bluntly, that women can't paint. Oh, Vincent. Because they're too busy making real babies. That's basically it. He's like, they're making real art, which is humans. So his intentions were okay. Yeah. I don't want to say his intentions were good, but they were okay. But he was kind of an idiot. So he was asked to speak at a meeting held by the Women Painters of the West. Awkward. And they asked him, let's do a friendly debate. When he got there, he sat at one of the tables and suddenly heard a clanking noise. And it was the women were like hitting their glasses with uh, like spoons and stuff to like get everyone's attention. The president of the Women Painters of the West Club stood up and announced, well, girls, here he is. Vincent stood up and there was no applause, no cheering, silence. And Vincent got his ass handed to him during the debate. Wow. Yeah. So if you guys want to learn more about what happened during that debate, check out the book, I Like What I Know, or A Daughter's Biography. The incident is documented in both of those books, and it's pretty hilarious. Oh, man. Basically, he got what he deserved. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We had to include that tidbit. I I had to include that because nobody's perfect. That's true. W. Colston Lee, a lecture manager, thought that Vincent would be ideal as a lecturer on the National Lecture Circuit. So during this time in the late 1950s, he became the most the second most requested lecturer. The first requested lecturer was Eleanor Roosevelt. Vincent spoke about European art, American art, American writers, and playwrights, and he would read Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven to music. This was the most sought-after performance during his lectures. During this time, the second horror movie renaissance of the 1950s continued to boom well into the 1960s, largely because of the Hammer horror films coming out in England and distributed in America. Roger Corman was a director and producer who was born professionally during this horror renaissance, and in 1960, Corman made a pitch to the film studio AIP about possibly making Edgar Allan Poe's stories into full-length features, particularly his favorite since junior high, The Fall of the House of Usher. 
That one is gnarly. According to Corman, there was no one else on his list to play Roderick Usher. He wanted Vincent Price. Vincent was tall and imposing, and just that was enough to frighten anyone. Vincent was already a huge fan of Edgar Allan Poe's work, obviously, and he loved this new twist on the story and felt that he and Corman had a similar vision of the film. All of the stories that Corman wanted to produce were of Poe's short stories and poems. How do you make full-length features from just those? Corman wanted to focus on the psychology of the characters and build off of that, and that is what Vincent really loved. He also loved the way Corman worked, he said how impressed he was with his way of like discovering new talent and teaching people how to make a film fast, on a budget, but still watchable. Corman and Vincent believed that the character Roderick Usher was actually somewhat of a sensitive and troubled hero. They both agreed that the real villain was the house. This made Vincent change his character's appearance somewhat. He bleached his hair and paled his skin with makeup. Saying along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing this, if you lived in an evil house, you would be very strange. <laughs> and so, okay, there you are. Excellent. He's very strange in it. Well, it's true. It's a theme that's carried through horror for years and years and years now. Yeah, absolutely. You could probably argue that um, Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House has a very similar themes where yep. like, the house is the bad guy. In well, it. and Stephen King, I, too. Yeah, totally. It all the time. Definitely. So double build with Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, The Fall of the House of Usher was a huge summer hit in 1960. AIP was so impressed with its success that they greenlit a whole cycle of Poe pictures. Roger Corman and Vincent Price would make eight, six of them Poe, films together. These were House of Usher, Pit in the Pendulum, Tales of Terror, The Raven, The Haunted Palace, The Mask of Red Death, and The Tomb of Ligeia. Tales of Terror is one of my favorites. Basil Rathbone and Peter Lorre are in it, which is pretty great. It was three 30-minute tales that were all like comedies. At least The Black Cat was a comedy. Peter Lorre apparently improvised a lot of his lines in that. And I guess he was trained in in improvisation in Germany. Like that was his thing. They actually brought in a wine taster to show Vincent and Peter how to properly taste wine in their dueling wine tasting scene. Yes. Uh, Vincent did exactly what the wine taster did, but he like hammed it up a little bit to like make it funny. Uh, And Peter Lorre did the exact opposite and just chugged all the wine. (laughs) Peter Lorre is always drunk. Yes, because even in Arsenic and Old Lace. Yeah. And he's drunk in The Raven, too. He plays the drunk wizard. So Vincent thought that it was very important to connect fear with comedy. He said, Comedy and terror are very closely allied. We try to make the audience enjoy themselves even as they were being scared. My job as an actor is to try to make the unbelievable believable and the despicable delectable. Delighted to return to horror comedy, Peter Lorre and Vincent Price, and now with Boris Karloff, starred in The Raven, which is basically a a film about two drunk wizards dueling. (laughs) Karloff had a hard time pulling off the comedy aspect of it all. He was a very serious actor. So The Mask of Red Death is easily the more superior film out of the Poe movies, It was deemed a modern gothic classic by critics. It's actually a combination of two uh, Poe stories. One, of course, is The Mask of Red Death, and the other is Hop Frog. 
wow i forgot about hop frog me too until i started researching this. that's the one about the jester yes right and he and the king orders him to drink and drink and drink or something until he drinks himself to death is that the right one yeah he he has him like drink like a ton of alcohol and he starts like doing weird stuff yeah uh, that yeah so mask of red death and hop frog are are this movie combined oh wow okay the film has a lot of surreal sort of feelings in it uh the critics felt that it might have been influenced by igmar Berg- bergman's work uh, the seventh seal mm. which is a trip and a half <laughs> the film didn't do as well with audiences though but it was definitely favored among critics the last Poe film in the cycle was The Tomb of Lygia, which many fans find the most satisfied, satisfying adaptation of a Poe film. It's still pretty strange, though. I did watch this one recently. It was written for the screen by the future writer of the award-winning film Chinatown. Really? Yeah. I And I personally want to talk more about these Poe films in depth in a future episode. Uh, so listeners, let us know if you would like a few in-depth episodes focusing on Corman and Price and the Poe films because we'll do it. So just let us know if that's what you want. So Vincent really liked horror. He truly did. Compared to his other horror film actor friends, he was really the only actor who embraced his role in horror, at least in America. He likened it to doing Shakespeare. His characters were evil, tormented, and sometimes sadistic, but they were sympathetic and always human. Vincent was not torn away from his art activism during this time, though. Throughout the late 50s and early 60s, Vincent promoted Native American art and artists, helping them find galleries and buyers. Vincent felt very strongly about using his celebrity status in any way he could to help support the arts. Sears was also looking to change their image, and so they hired Vincent to be the spokesperson for their new art department. Thus, the Vincent Price Collection for Sears was born, and Vincent could really bring art to the American public. He loved that Sears wanted to make original art affordable to middle and lower class families. Vincent was also thrilled that thousands of unestablished but talented artists would also be discovered during this time, and they would be able to sell their work through Sears. Uh, Even well-established artists, including Salvador Dali, became involved, which I thought was pretty neat. Have you seen the promotional video for that? No. Tell me about it. It's great. He talks about, um, I know you're not used to seeing me in this type of setting, and like he talks about murdering people. It's great. (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Is it on YouTube? I think so. Awesome. We'll have to watch that. Yeah. During the 1960s, Vincent was the most visible spokesperson for the arts in the world, so much so that he was asked to sit on the White House Art Committee. Most of the art in the White House had been taken by the former presidents and their families as souvenirs. Um, but I feel like that's illegal. It actually wasn't because the White House hadn't been declared a monument yet. Wow. Yeah. So how much art is missing from the White House? Um, 
at the time, like everything was gone. I guess like when Vincent got there to kind of check out like what they needed to do to like redo the White House, it was just a mess. So in the second year of the Kennedy administration, one of Vincent's Yale friends who was a museum curator and a good friend of JFK was asked to come on board and help redecorate the White House. He knew that his college buddy Vincent would be able to um, help him with it. The White House was declared a national monument, so anything given to the White House would stay on display there, or if not there, it would go to the Smithsonian Museum. Mm, Okay. Vincent was instrumental in getting $40,000 worth of art into the White House, including Native American portraits that were done by artist Charles Byrd King. And Vincent and his wife, uh, Mary, they also donated a piece that they owned, and it was an oil painting by Albert Bierstadt. Uh, it was one of his uh, a study of clouds paintings. So Jackie O and JFK loved that painting so much that they hung it in the bedroom so that it would be the first thing that they would see every morning when they woke up. Oh my gosh. Precious. That is precious. The 1960s were also a time when Barrett would go off to college. So this time by themselves, uh, Vincent and Mary had the opportunity to travel together again, so they spent six months in Rome at the height of the city's post-war glamour. But Vincent, being the workaholic that he was, worked on six films while he was there. Most of them were costume epics. These included Rage of the Buccaneers and Queen of the Nile. And when Vincent was working on his films, uh, Barrett would try to visit Rome whenever he wasn't in school uh, so that he could go sightsee with Mary. So this is interesting. Barrett noticed that something was wrong with Mary, though. Mm. She was queasy, and she had a very strange appetite. So he was concerned for her health, and so he suggested that she see a doctor. And she discovered that she was... Riggers. Wow. Yep. Well, you know, when in Rome. <laughs> so on April 22nd, 1962, daughter Mary Victoria Price was born in Santa Monica, California. She was named after her mother, of course, and her father's first successful play. Oh, that's so sweet. Around the time of Victoria's birth, Vincent was to star in a film directed by Gene Corman, who was Roger Corman's brother. It was set to be filmed like a psychological thriller meets Mm. Richard III. This film would be known as Tower of London, not to be confused with the 1939 film that Vincent also starred in, where he played Richard's brother. So this time, Vincent would actually be in the title role, so he'd be Richard. Mm, Okay. Reviews were mediocre, But campy horror films were like a trend in the 60s, so it didn't get too much backlash from audiences. So Vincent was now the proud father of two children. One child was in his 20s, a college graduate, married, and with a baby on the way. The other was an infant. Okay. Yeah, whatever (laughs) floats your boat, Vinny. He actually said something along the lines of, well, I guess I'm not as old as I thought I was. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so all silver fox. He is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, although Mary and Vincent were thrilled to become parents, it couldn't have happened at a more inconvenient time. Vincent was frickin' 51. <laughs> And Mary was 45. Oh. 
Yeah. You go, girl. Giving birth at 45. (sighs) Professionally, their lives were soaring upwards, but with a new baby, they would have to make several sacrifices and, of course, put her first at least for the first 18 years of her life. Yeah. This, unfortunately, created the first real strain on their marriage. (sighs) For most of Victoria's childhood, she would be surrounded by nannies while her father did films. Her mother helped frame the Sears art orders during that time as well, and they were both publishing cookbooks. So other people sort of had to raise uh, Victoria during that time. For Vincent, having a child in his 50s, it gave him a second life, and he felt like he could enjoy the fun and simple things again, like riding the roller coasters and searching for shells on the beach. And interestingly enough, as Victoria got older, she became fascinated with books and writing rather than art and history like her parents. And I think that sort of broke his heart a little bit. I think they kind of hoped that she would be into that. In 1964, Vincent starred in the first of three adaptations of Richard Matherson's novel, I Am Legend. The film that he was in was called The Last Man on Earth. Vincent played the only survivor of the plague that turned people into vampiric zombies. Yikes. How old is that book? Well, it came out, I believe, in either the late 50s or 60s. Okay, I think it was the 50s. I think you're right. That book is great, and there in my opinion, is no true adaptation of that of that book, though. Mm-hmm. Like, Last Man on Earth sort of follows it, but not really. Yeah. And um, The Omega Man, which was uh, starred uh, Charlton Heston, which was, like, oh. the other one that came out after that. That one I didn't think was very well adapted. And I Am Legend with Will Smith is not the same story. No. Like, at all freaking all it's not and the ending all the endings are not the same as the ending in the book that bothers me because if you haven't read i am legend like the whole reason it's called i am legend is because of that ending and none of the movies have that ending Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous so read read a book (laughs) (laughs) so get away from your television and read a book (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's very good it is real great this year would also start vincent and mary on a new venture with sears it was called national treasures the idea was born from their love of antiquing together so cute very cute all the pieces were limited editions and stamped with a special manufacturer's mark vincent and mary would also go to antique stores to search for project products themselves and mary would actually have to have vincent wait outside so that they could get better deals on antiques because if they saw that a famous actor was trying to buy antiques they would raise the price ah so he'd have to hide (laughs) get out of here about a year later vincent and mary created national treasure recipes this chronicled the history of the united states through food yum who doesn't love that? That I know. I, I kind of want to get that recipe. Me too. That recipe book. Vincent was buying a lot more art for Sears around this time in the 1960s. This was mostly from galleries, but sometimes warehouses would throw together shows just for him so that he could look at and possibly buy some art. But by 1967, the Vincent Price collection venture with Sears was headed in a downward spiral. Some critics were speaking publicly about the legitimacy of the art, and this scared the new CEOs who came in that year. 
They wanted maximum profit, so Vincent had to double check on the authenticity of the paintings. And Vincent felt that this was a tremendous waste of time for him. And he was super upset with how greedy the new Sears CEOs were. The whole point was to make art affordable for the middle class. And it quickly became clear that the new CEOs had different views on than their predecessors did. Vincent continued to work with Sears into the early 1970s, but it was clear that his dream to bring affordable art into the homes of Americans had come to an end. Uh, they also started using Vincent for other, other commercial reasons, like he was being hired to promote all kinds of Sears products and not just art. Oh, that's tacky. Yeah, so Vincent was done with Sears after that. So during this time, in between like 1963 and 1970, Vincent appeared in a number of films, most of which were with AIP. And let me just say, Abby, these films are gems in the nicest way I can say that possible because they're not good movies. <laughs> So basically, you're lying. I'm a liar, sorry. Great. There was Beach Party, which was one of the first teen flicks that was produced by AIP. And Vincent appeared as the big daddy of the beach. That I'm was his sorry. Character. What? Yeah, he was sort of like a spoof, like a beach spoof of himself. And he would say things like, the pit, where's the pendulum, kitties? I want to swing away. <sighs> yeah. Uh, there was also a movie called Taboos of the World, War Gods of the Deep, Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. What? <laughs> it was like a camp version of the James Bond film Goldfinger. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. This film actually was successful, though. <laughs> I mean, I would watch it. With a title like that, The Bikini Machine? Yep. He, like, lured people into his lair by producing, like, bikinied women, and they would, like, seduce people. Uh, he also did a sequel to that, which was, <laughs> yep, which was called Dr. Goldfoot and the Gold Bombs. That movie did bomb. <laughs> the Gold Bombs? The Gold Bombs, and it like bombed. Like, B-O-M-B-S? Yeah. Like, oh. bombed. <laughs> like my sound effect yeah it was nice there was also a film called house of a thousand dolls more dead than alive which was a western film scream and scream again which featured christopher lee the trouble with girls which was an elvis presley movie <laughs> yeah. the oblong box which was another film with christopher lee that he did witch finder general also known as the conqueror worm which Ooh, is one, one of my favorites yeah and Cry of the Banshee, which was Vincent's 100th film. That's amazing. Woo! By 1970, he had 100 films. That's amazing. Yeah. At the end of 1970, Vincent would return to England to film your favorite, the abominable Dr. Fibes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> the, the movie became a, quote, groovy classic. Oh, my God. That one is actually a little bit creepy. That one is creepy. It's about this guy who is rushing to be with his wife, right? And he's mutilated in a car accident. And after she dies. After right? she yeah, dies, yeah. yeah. So he's, like, rushing to be with her in the hospital, and she dies, and then he's presumed dead in the wreck because his chauffeur's body was found, and they think it's him. And then uh, he is, like, he's, like, tries to kill the doctors, right, who mm -hmm. he thinks are responsible for his wife's death. Right. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a good film. The tagline is hilarious. The tagline is, love means never having to say you're ugly. Yes. 
I love it. I want that. I want the poster with that line on it. I love everything about it. Yep. (laughs) That same year, Vincent and Mary published their now well-known cookbook, Come Into Our Kitchen, a collection of what they considered were America's greatest recipes. Um, The cover of that cookbook makes me hungry. Vincent also wrote a book with his son, Barrett, and this was about the history of American art. Vincent also took a short break from filming during this time and appeared on a number of TV shows, including Hollywood Squares, which he did like 90-ish episodes of or something crazy. Uh, The Tonight Show, where he cooked uh, different recipes and he taught the audience how to steam a fish in a dishwasher. What? Yeah, of course, without soap. But he like had the fish and you like put like uh, like lemon and like all these other like herbs and stuff and then you wrap it in tin foil and you put it in the dishwasher and you you know steam it let me tell you everything that's wrong with that what wait a minute a tin foil is bad for you b it's gonna make your dishwasher smell like fish it's gonna make all your dishes fishy i got fishy dishes thanks oh for God. nothing vincent I mean, I really hate to burst your bubble, but... (laughs) But now my dishes smell like fishes. And maybe not sanitary. That's true. (laughs) Vincent always felt like his films were more of gothic tales with a sense of unreality rather than straight-up horror. In the uh, mid-1970s, there was like a huge uproar in the media about children watching horror movies. Really? I thought that was today, but okay. I guess it's always been a problem. (laughs) So Vincent is quoted as saying, I once went around and asked a priest, a rabbi, and child psychologist if they thought that horror movies were bad for children, and not one of them had a bad thing to say about them. They said that they were like a catharsis, like a fairy tale, and they have the effect of shifting a child's hate away from the parent and transferring it to the villain. In 1973, Vincent was set to star in the film Theater of Blood, where he would play the main character, Edward Lionheart, an aging Shakespearean actor so tormented by bad reviews from critics, decides to kill them all in famous Shakespearean ways with the help of his daughter, who was played by Diana Rigg. Which, in case you don't know who she is, she plays Lady Tyrell in Game of Thrones. Wow. The old lady, yeah, the sassy one. Excellent. Diana Rigg was so thrilled to be working with Vincent because she felt like he was the sweetest and most humble actor she had ever met. To add to the irony of the film, a handful of of Great Britain's greatest actors played the critics. Vincent was thrilled to be performing with quality talent and to be playing a character that was modern and a Shakespearean actor. The film promised to be an eventful time for him both on screen and in his private life. (laughs) For playing the only female critic was the stunning Australian actress, Coral Brown. Even at an early age, Coral got what she wanted. For her 21st birthday, her father gave her some money and a round-trip passage to London from Australia and back on the condition that she return once all the money was spent. Coral, however, did not return and worked in theater in England for the rest of her life. Coral was also known as a scarlet woman in the theater world. Yes. As in like Nathaniel Hawthorne, scarlet letter, scarlet woman? So scarlet women, woman, I think, was a biblical term. I think oh, it was like yeah, women yeah, okay. who like slept around. Floozies. 
floozies. Theater floozies. <laughs> she was a theater floozy. But you know what? She didn't disagree with that term. And she like loved that she was considered a scarlet woman. Like everyone that's knew like, her as that. That's pretty admirable, I have to say, though. Like, at least own it. Be proud of who you are. Yeah, she was not, like, she didn't mind that that's what she was known as. And so many young actors were told to watch out for her, including a young Roddy McDowell, who ended up becoming one of her really good friends. But he was warned about her when he was young. They're like, don't, don't be careful. (laughs) She might have sex with you. (laughs) He was like, yikes. Be careful. You might have a really good time. Coral was known to say, I don't care who I sleep with. I'm going to be a star. Coral would go through many ups and downs in her career and in her love life. Just when she finally decided to settle down and marry, her husband died 14 years later of cancer. Oh. To cope, she constantly redecorated her apartment, dyed her hair, and went back to her whirlwind life. Sounds like me. Right? I think Minus we... the flooziness. <laughs> <laughs> Just so we're clear. <laughs> It wasn't until she met Vincent that she began to settle again. At first sight, her and Vincent were hook, line, and sinker. They were in love like two teenagers. She had her eye on Vincent from the start, even though she knew he was married. But let me let me just say, it takes two to tango. Yeah. And like, you know, she is not the bad guy here. Like, no, yeah. obviously, like they both have issues i guess in that sense like they were both the problem uh but of course they didn't see that like they were both willing participants and it was fine and whatever right i love how everyone is like she's a seductress and it's like you fell for it (laughs) so like like, what right like i'm sorry but like okay one person might be the seducer but it's like i don't know my whole thing it takes two to tango and if you're gonna if you're going to accept that kind of behavior and go for it, then you're just as, you Well, know. Vincent was a flirtatious man, so he I'm sure that only added was. fuel to the fire. Yeah, he definitely had his own little flair there. <laughs> so once Vincent and Coral started their love affair, it was a wildly sexual relationship. They had so much sex. But he was like... N- I know. I'm no. not age shaming at all. Like, if you're that age and you're still getting fancy, good for you. But how old was he at this point? Um, This was the 70s. So I want to say he was either late 60s or early 70s something because he was born in 1911. Yeah. So, okay. So, so he would have been 60s-ish. She was very similar in age to him, too. So they were both, like, knocking their boots <laughs> and they were having a good time. Good for them. Right. They made a striking couple, and they knew it, and so did everyone else during the filming of Theater of Blood. Diana Rigg admitted that she had helped them get together, and in hindsight, she felt really bad because that she had encouraged this relationship. <sighs> but she had never heard Vincent talk about Mary or his children. This Aww. gave Diana Rigg the impression that Vincent was separated from his family. This was strange because Mary and Victoria came to visit Vincent in England not long before that. Victoria remembers her mother being confused about Vincent's behavior. He was very off, distracted, and irritable. Mary's friends in London hinted at her that she should watch out for Coral Brown, but Mary claimed that she trusted her husband. Production of Theater of Blood had ended and Vincent returned to the U.S. His behavior was the same, though, when he got home. He was odd, off, and irritable. He wrote love letters to Coral every day over the course of a few months, trying to plan the next role in the hay with her. Oh, 
my sweet baby Jesus. Yeah. Uh, not long after he had returned home, he was actually sent back to London to do some voice work. No oh, darn. Yeah. And he <laughs> met up with Coral again. This time, emotionally, he would never leave her. Mary eventually confronted Vincent when he returned home from London. She point blank asked him, are you having an affair? And Vincent did not miss a beat. He said, yes. Mary, right away, because she was so angry, said, I want a divorce. And to her shock, Vincent agreed immediately. A 24-year marriage just died. Just right there in that living room. Whoa. Awkwardly, Vincent was about to appear on the game show, This Is Your Life. (laughs) Wow. Excellent timing. And the producers contacted Mary to help surprise her husband with the show oh my god and she was probably like "Mm, let me just tell you because their separation was not yet public and mary knew that the show was a great honor to vincent she agreed to help and was able to procure many of vincent's old friends and she even appeared on the show as like one of the final guests like this is your life and it was his wife that he was leaving i'm gonna cry that's the worst not long after the premiere of the show mary announced that her and vincent were separating mary and most of the rest of the world still did not know who vincent was seeing and some thought it was very cowardly of vincent to not tell mary who he was seeing vincent was so burdened by the guilt about coral that he wanted mary to have like as much as she wanted out of the divorce and mary wanted nothing of it like she was just so angry that she just wanted to get rid of everything and start over i mean you can't replace emotions with material things right well as far as everyone knew and as far as i think mary knew everything was fine in their marriage so i think it yeah in the summer i know coral (laughs) coral In the summer of 1973, Vincent and Mary's divorce was finalized, and Victoria remembers her childhood coming to an end at that point. Mary had full custody of Victoria, and Vincent was never coming home again. Barrett was completely stunned and totally devastated. He had always loved Mary and considered her his real mother. It was tough because they had just made a book together about monsters, him and Vincent. And this would be the last time the father and son duo would make anything together. Oh. Then the National Enquirer ran a story (laughs) about Vincent and Coral. It was on the cover. Wow. Mary discovered this while in line to buy groceries. Oh. So that's how she found out who he was having the affair with. Oh, Mary. Barrett decided that he wanted to get to know Coral As much as this whole thing devastated him, he wanted to invite them down to New Mexico where he was living with his wife and maybe plan a trip with them. (sighs) So the trip would actually prove to be (laughs) semi-disastrous. You think? All Coral would do was complain about the trip. And when they were on the road, she would just constantly ask, are we there yet? And her and Vincent were just too close. Like, they were, like, teen... Like, when I say they were, like, teenagers, like, they were, like, goosing each other and, like, making out. All right. Take a step back. If I was Barrett, I would have pulled the car over and been like, you're walking. (laughs) Good luck. Very soon after, Coral thought that they should live together. No! So the couple decided that Coral should move in with Vincent to California. 
They moved into a modest Spanish house in Beverly Hills, and she was determined to be the next Mrs. Price, although Vincent wasn't keen on marrying again. But Coral said that she was sick of being introduced as Vincent Price and Ms. Brown. Actually, that sounds quite nice. It's got quite a ring to it. Well, Miss Miss Brown. Oh, (laughs) I get it. My last name is Brown. I Yeah. <laughs> Vincent loved the fact that he and Coral were living this love affair, passionate life. And with two divorces behind him, he wasn't about to marry again. Okay, so here's the thing. Remember how he was like, the next time I marry, it will be for keeps and for love. This wasn't love. I mean... This was lusty passion. Lusty passion. Gross, lusty passion. Uh, but here's the thing. If Coral wanted it, she got it. Yeah, I know. Okay, can I just say also, though, Coral Brown sounds like a line of makeup for, I don't know. It sounds like the color of, like, blush. Yes. Like, if you wanted, like, a bronzy, like, rosy kind of blush, you would get the Coral Brown. Yeah, it also reminds me of, like, a really cheesy 70s bathroom. Where uh-huh. everything is pink and brown. Give my bathroom the <laughs> coral brown look. <laughs> Give me that pink tile. <laughs> Those brown curtains. Soon, Vincent took Coral to Mexico, and he tried to marry her there, but Coral was aghast. This was where he married Mary. Oh. <laughs> Vincent, get it together, man. So Coral was Catholic, so she wanted to get married in a church. Vincent was twice divorced, so Coral put the bug in his ear and said along the lines of, Since you married Mary in Mexico, maybe your marriage was never legal. You should see if you can get your marriage to her annulled. Not long after, a Catholic priest came to Mary's home and asked her to annul her former marriage to Vincent on the grounds that the marriage had not been performed by an American justice of the peace. Mary was horrified, and I don't blame her. Vincent was about to disregard their entire partnership of 24 years, which would also mean that their daughter Victoria would be labeled legally as illegitimate. Oh my god. Naturally, Mary refused. When Vincent sent her a personal letter asking her to please comply, Mary stood her ground a second time and said, hell to the no. (laughs) Good for you, Mary. Oh, my God. So with no way of getting married in a Catholic church, Coral and Vincent married in a civil ceremony in Santa Barbara. Shortly thereafter, Vincent, at the age of 63, converted to Catholicism, knowing that Coral would be happy about it. Friends of Vincent approached him with his new marriage and and conversion to Catholicism, and at first, they were kind of like, dude, what the heck is happening? Like, your whole marriage is gone, and now you're a Catholic? Like, what is going on? This woman. This woman. And apparently, he, his parents like hated catholics i guess vincent's parents wow yeah it was like this huge deal i guess growing up so like the fact that he became catholic they were like this is so interesting of you so he was like super defensive at first and he would tell them like he was in a lot of he was in love and coral was so much fun to be around and he would do anything for her and he was so happy like a wet sandwich 
Ew. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so his friends were like, okay, dude, we're happy for you, but we're really shocked like that you're doing this. They didn't think Mary and Vincent's marriage was on the verge of disintegration, like, at all. And they thought that Coral must have just appeared and sparked something new in his life. Coral was super engaging and frightening, but also quite amusing. And Mary was very grounded, which was very, of course, different from Coral. She was frightening. That's what they said in A Daughter's Biography. She was described as frightening. The first few years of the divorce were rough for both Mary and Vincent. The only time they talked was when Victoria and or Barrett were the subject. But after a while, the rough years smoothed out and Vincent and Mary again became friends. Not close friends. They became tolerable of each other and were able to be in the same room without anything going wrong. Mm. This made Coral so angry. She was afraid that Vincent would remember that Mary was softer and you know, she had maybe like a better qualities about her. And so she hated the fact that they still talked. Yeah. Whoa. But Coral need not worry because as far as Mary was concerned, there was no going back and she was going to be forever apart from Vincent after what he had pulled. So Mary was of course very devastated about the divorce, but had moved on and had a very, very successful career in architectural design. Strangely, but not surprisingly, Coral made Vincent cut most of his friend connections so that she could have more time with him and more time with her friends. And she made her opinions about Barrett and Victoria very clear. And Vincent at times would have to sneak out of the house in order to spend any time with his children. Coral called Barrett the Albuquerque poet, and she did that in a very negative way, and made it clear to Vincent that she hated him. (gasps) Coral wouldn't even allow Barrett's son to call the house to speak with Vincent. Apparently, Vincent and Coral were never invited to visit Barrett again after that. She is a wretched woman. Yeah. So Vincent would often book lecture circuits in Albuquerque just so he could spend time with Barrett, Barrett's wife, and the grandchildren. Oh my god. Barrett would also do the same for his writing lectures and events in L.A., but all of the sneaking around wouldn't last, and Vincent was forced to choose between Coral and his children. To Victoria, Coral referred herself as Victoria's wicked stepmother. But when Coral would go away to film a movie in England, Vincent and Victoria would cook and cook and cook for hours. Their favorite dish to make together when Coral wasn't around? Creme brulee. Oh. According to friends and family, it's difficult to know what was happening in Vincent's head during this time because he obviously was not ignorant to it. Vincent, it seems, was just not a confrontational person and just hoped that everyone would just forgive him and it would all blow over. Following the events of the divorce and remarriage, Vincent hadn't done a film since Theater of Blood. It would be two years before he had done another. His last AIP price horror film was Madhouse, in which Vincent played a washed-up horror movie actor who has a nervous breakdown. Yikes. Yeah. He also did the film Percy's Progress, also known as It's Not the Size That Counts. Can you guess what that film was about? Um. Just <laughs> guess. What do you, What does it sound like? It was a film about the first successful penis transplant. Oh! Pleasant. <laughs> Vincent appeared on the stage, but was starting to get anxiety. And in one performance, he flubbed his lines and skipped four pages of dialogue. Whoa! Yeah. 
He was starting to have stomach problems and had trouble sleeping. You know, it's probably because he freaking cheated on his wife and he was feeling super guilty about it is what I'm thinking. (laughs) He actually had a tumor in his digestive system and had to have surgery to remove it. Whoa. Yeah. Coral was also obsessed with the idea of herself getting cancer ever since her first husband died of it in 1964. She would get tests done constantly and would consciously try and avoid it at all costs by like changing her diet and doing all the exercising and all this crazy stuff. We're going to skip ahead in time. She actually... Uh, discovered a lump on her leg in 1978 and she thought it was cancerous so she got a chunk of it like a large chunk of her leg removed and apparently the lump wasn't actually cancerous but she was like so freaked out about it that she just had her doctor take like half of her leg off Um. so Coral had a lot of gay and openly bisexual friends, and she herself had had relationships with women during her more promiscuous years. She actually had a very serious relationship with a woman when she was in her 20s, and it ended when the woman asked her to move in with her, and she said, no, this might ruin my career. So, like, sleeping around was, like, never going to ruin her career, but, like, actually having, like, a committed relationship with a woman was, like, too much. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's really sad. It wasn't until Vincent met Coral that he, too, started admitting to others that he had had relations with people of the same sex as him. So, here's a snippet from Victoria Price's interview with the website Queerty. She says, the interesting thing for me is that when I came out to him, he said to me, you know, I know just how you feel because I have had these deep loving relationships with men in my life and all of my wives were jealous. Whoa. So Victoria was like, whoa, dad. Like, look, I was just coming out. Oh <laughs> like, my She gosh. had no idea her dad would come out basically to her too. In a daughter's biography, Victoria says that she's still not sure if her dad really was bisexual or not because he himself never mentioned it outright or publicly. Mm. So he says he had these deep loving relationships with men, but it's like, was he having sex with them or was he just like in a like a very close relationship with them? Like he never actually said outright that he was bisexual to her. Interesting. Yeah. However, we do know that his marriage with Coral was a marriage of convenience because they were remarkably and passionately together. Like there was no doubt that they were like sexing it up in that relationship. (laughs) So, you know, he was definitely straight for Coral and she was definitely straight for him. Wow. In 1975, Vincent took a break from filming uh, this break would last about five years, and he did a narration for Alice Cooper's first solo album, Welcome to My Nightmare. Yeah. In 1980, Vincent returned to film, and he starred in a playful horror picture called Monster Club, alongside John Carradine and Donald Pleasance. In the film, Vincent plays a vampire who has retractable teeth, a concept <laughs> that he came up with because it was too hard for him to talk with the teeth in his mouth. In 1982, the film House of the Long Shadows would bring together a handful of famous horror actors, including Christopher Lee, John Carradine, Peter Cushing, and Vincent Price. The first time that all of these horror legends would be in a film together. I think 
in the last time. Yeah. No, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Um, that was in 1980. But in 1981, I think he did his first Tim Burton, like, collab, right? I want to say it was well, when he it's narrated. actually it's actually coming up. Um, that was actually around the same year. Uh, Vincent continued to stay busy with a number of voice projects. Um, actually, before I think before uh, the Tim Burton short, he did Michael Jackson's smash hit song and music video, uh, Thriller. Like he did the voice yeah, of the okay. guy in Thriller. Right. Uh, so before we get into Tim Burton, here's a little backstory about his uh, stint with the with Michael Jackson. Unfortunately, Vincent uh, did not secure the royalties to his voice when he made the the album, and uh, he saw none of the cut when the album like freaking like went crazy. Oh my god! Yeah, so he like missed out on literally millions of dollars. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Jackson heard about Vincent's disappointment with not getting any sort of cut, so. One day, daughter Victoria answered the door to Michael Jackson's entourage, and they all came bearing gifts. One gift was a thank you letter from Michael Jackson, written by Jackson himself, a large frame containing a poster of Michael Jackson, and one and gold and two platinum albums. Vincent turned the gifts into a faux altar surrounded by candles. <laughs> sort of like a death to his millions of dollars he could have earned shrine wow vincent was so upset about the whole the whole ordeal that he eventually opted to auction off the records that jackson gave him and he would give that money to his gallery that he opened in east los angeles college oh okay that's nice so something good came of that but you know he never saw any money Wow, that sucks so yeah vincent did do a narration for tim burton's short clay animated film vincent and this would spark the friendship that would last until vincent's death uh so tell me about the short vincent uh tim burton made it when he i think he was like a young very very early filmmaker yeah i think he had started at disney or something and he was like making it and it's not that long i want to say it's maybe like five minutes long if that less than that yeah yeah and he talks about vincent as a little boy and yeah a little boy who wants to become vincent price oh right right yeah yeah so oh that God, that's so a cute it's a great it's a great little short film mm-hmm. in 1983 vincent would appear in an ill-received horror film called bloodbath at the house of death <laughs> according to victoria in a daughter's biography in an interview soon after the release of bloodbath at the house of death Vincent was asked a horror-related question, and he understandably lost his cool. He basically said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he basically said, I'm sick of talking about horror. I'm too old. Do you ask Al Pacino what it's like to make gangster films? I'm just bored. Whoa. Yeah. In 1984, he did a few television stints. Uh, Most notable were his appearance as the Magic Mirror in Shelley Duvall's Fairy Tale Theater and the narrator in The Boy Who Went to Find the Shivers. Yes. All right. Yeah. Starting in 1985, he did voice work for the 13 Ghosts of Scooby-Doo cartoons where he played a character based on himself called Vincent Van Gool. Nice. And in 1986, Vincent was asked to do two different films. One was by Disney, and he was asked to do the voice of the villain in their long-awaited animated feature, The Great Mouse Detective. Yes. 
Yeah. It's a fun <laughs> adaptation based on the Sherlock Holmes adventures. Uh, Vincent was proud of his voice work in the film, and he was also super proud that he got to sing in it as well, because he loved singing. If we remember going back to his days at Yale, joining the Glee Club. The other film that he was asked to do was called Wales of August. It's a story about two old sisters living on an island off the coast of Maine. Lillian Gish and Betty Davis starred, and Vincent played their Russian friend, Mr. Marinarf. Vincent used his late brother Mort as the character inspiration. It was considered his best performance in years, possibly his best performance since Theater of Blood in 1973. Wow. Throughout the 80s, Vincent would also be the intro and extra host of PBS's Mystery. Mystery was like a variety series of sorts, and it's still on PBS today. Some of us might remember it uh, from like the Edward Gorey in intro with like the yes. cartoons yeah so he did the intro for that an extra for that for eight years wow in 1988 vincent celebrated his 50th year in movies he was 77 years old he enjoyed the recent fanfare and being called a hollywood legend going all the way back to his choice to be in house of wax there was a good chance that none of this would have happened if he had not done that film when the New York Times used him as an answer in a crossword puzzle, Vincent felt that this was the confirmation that he really was famous. Excellent. Towards the end of the 80s and beginning of the 90s, Coral discovered that Vincent was allegedly having an affair with an unknown person. Friends assumed it was a woman, but Coral was for sure it was a man. At least that's what she told Victoria. She told him that she would divorce him and she would make it all very public vincent stopped seeing the person man or woman almost instantly and after that his health declined drastically wait so he really was having an affair yeah apparently allegedly wow yeah all right he was beginning to see the results of a crippling arthritis the same that took his father Aww. he was losing weight and becoming very frail at one point, Vincent was rushed to the hospital after being unable to steady his hands. It was then discovered that Vincent had Parkinson's disease. Although Vincent's health was failing him, he still had time for one more picture. Tim Burton's original story about a boy with scissor hands was greenlit, and Burton wanted Vincent to play the inventor. Vincent loved Burton and Johnny Depp. And Vincent would call Johnny Depp every year on his birthday until Vincent died. Oh, my gosh. The film was very well received. And Vincent was very satisfied with his performance. And if you read um, a daughter's biography, she talks about how uh, Johnny Depp uh, had like a first edition copy of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, poetry and short stories. And he and Vincent would like talk in his trailer and like discuss Edgar Allan Poe and stuff together. Yeah, that's the most precious. After the premiere of Edward Scissorhands, Coral was diagnosed with cancer, and it seemed like there was no coming back from it. Her faith in the Catholic Church also seemed to wane towards the end of her life, and she refused to have the local priest come to the house and visit her and Vincent. Then in April 1991, Coral knew that she was on her way out, so she decided to stop talking altogether. Vincent would try and speak with her, but she would never answer him. A few days later, Coral passed while Vincent was away filming a documentary. Bye. <laughs> That's all we've got to say about that. Yep. A lifelong smoker, Vincent was diagnosed with emphysema, which made the rest of his living life more difficult. 
However, Coral was gone, and for the first time since Victoria was a child, she and Vincent could have a real father-daughter relationship again without sneaking around. Victoria recalls in the daughter's biography how thankful she was to have some, some time with her father and mend their relationship, but she would always t- have a tinge of regret remembering how she didn't have enough time with him when she was younger. Oh, that's so sad. In 1993, Vincent would feel like he was on his way out, so he spent as much time with Victoria and Barrett, but it was difficult for him to move around due to his arthritis and Parkinson's, so everyone would have to come to him. During this time, he received a gift from a friend. It was a pillow, and it said, screw the old days. So he just kept that pillow with him until he died. (laughs) Screw the old days. Here's a pillow. (laughs) Here's a pillow. I'll never see you again. Bye. So, unfortunately, oh. Coral helped destroy most of his friendships that he had Way had. Way to go, Coral. Luckily, he still had a few people left in his life who had forgiven him, and they would visit him. Victoria hired a league of young men to help her father around the house, and Roddy McDowell called these men the Angels. Oh. This was also the time that Vincent decided to reject Catholicism. In October 1993, Victoria had to leave California for New York for some work. And Vincent said to her before she left, quote, You know, they say I could go any minute. When she asked if she, if she should stay, he said no, but Victoria stayed anyway and sat with her father watching a rough cut of the unseen documentary that Tim Burton had done about Vincent. Uh, this documentary still isn't available to this day. Uh, but she was watching it, The what they had cut together for it, and she noticed that her father was fading in and out of consciousness. Victoria just held his hand the whole time. Then a few days later, on October 25th in 1993, she left for New York, and while sitting on the runway, she saw a plane jet off into the night, and she imagined her father was on that flight, on to his next adventure. He had died that night. And Abby, you have a really great quote that Vincent uh, had said about death. Yeah, later on in his life, um, when it was close to his time, he said, right at this moment, I only want silence. I believe that the end of life is silence and the love people have for you. I've actually been running through what people have said about the end. Religion says that the end is one thing because it serves their purpose. But great thinkers alike haven't always agreed. Shakespeare knew how to say it better than anyone else. Hamlet says, the rest is silence. And when you think of the noises of everyday life, you realize how particularly desirable that is. Silence. Thank you. Wow. So let's talk about the legacy of Vincent Price to end this episode. For me, he was sort of like somebody that I felt like I could trust in a horror film. Like, there was a like a warm like quality that he also had about him so like even though he was like all these bad guys in these horror films it was sort of like a comforting feeling because it was almost like you knew that he was acting and I mean that in the most uh respected way possible because as an actor you don't want to be seen as somebody who's just acting Right. But you want to be seen as that character. But for me, it was sort of like, I know that I can trust this film and I know that I'm going to enjoy this film because I know that you, Vincent Price, are a good person. 
and that I respect your work and I respect your film and I respect your character and like seeing like all those films when I was younger and then like seeing like the Muppet show where he was on the Muppet show and um you know then seeing Bill Hader perform as him on SNL yeah which is hilarious um you know and then seeing like these horror movie uh companies that make like t-shirts and buttons and stuff like with his face on it it's just sort of like he's like the dad of horror movies like you know that like he's like gonna be there for you kind of thing and that's what I really got get from his legacy yeah absolutely I think the biggest um appeal about him and his whole persona for me is that he just embodies humanism. Mm -hmm. He is a magnificent actor and a wonderful promoter of the arts and everything, but he wasn't perfect. And you can see that from his early life all the way until the end of his life. He is so relatable in that way, I think. So I think that's part of, you know, where the comfort comes from. Because he feels like a close friend, kind of. Absolutely, yeah. And um, his work is like nothing else. No, there's nobody else like him. He, like you said, like he's amazingly human. He, he definitely was somebody who, when you watch his films, make makes you feel like you can relate to him on the screen, and that's important. Otherwise, you're just watching people move on a television. Yeah, and you're like that's not fun. Yeah, absolutely. And he always questioned if he was successful or not, or if he was good enough for the industry. And I think that spoke a lot about his humility. Mm -hmm. But again, it comes back to him just being human. And you kind of realize that he has all of these flaws and he had self-doubt also. Mm -hmm. But that didn't change the fact that he became an icon. Yeah, that didn't stop him. Right. And he continued to work through the the self-doubt, and now he's one of the most recognizable horror actors of all time. Yeah. Yeah, he, to end it, I just want to say, like, he was probably the most unique and friendly man to grace the screen in horror movies. Yeah, absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening, and... We hope you really enjoyed this two-part special on Vincent Price. Have a really, really exciting and happy Halloween. Stay safe and drink responsibly and hand out candy responsibly. But also eat lots of candy. Um, make lots of pumpkin bread. Uh, yes. Get out there and carve those pumpkins. Make pumpkin seeds. Abby, you like you said you like olive oil and uh, cracked pepper and sea salt. Mm. Do it. Do it. You won't regret Yum. it. Guys, thank you so much as always for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.